It's good to see you with us. We are starting this series on the believer's armor in Ephesians chapter 6. And so each of the nights that we are in this series, we're going to be building a soldier, you, you and me. Let's bring a soldier in, have him come in. We need this Roman soldier as an object lesson for us. Here he comes. All right. This is Pastor Aaron, all right? (laughs) Now, by the way, I have to tell you a story. The armor that you see that he's wearing, this is not plastic. This is pretty close to the real stuff. (laughs) His father took an interest in Roman soldiers, so he contacted a friend that he has out in California and Hollywood studios and used in movie sets had Roman soldier authentic equipment, and he purchased 10 Roman soldiers, all right? And so what we have are are pieces of equipment that are genuine to scale and comparable. Um, My hobby is studying military, and this is the real deal. We have everything right down. The only part we're missing are the greaves, the metal pieces that would cover the shins, and everything else we have. Same weight, same equipment that they would see. You would see a soldier on the street. And Aaron's going to help demonstrate a couple of these pieces. And what we're going to do in the weeks ahead is take a soldier apart or build him and see what God is teaching throughout these pieces of armor. A few years ago, I made a a study of this passage of Scripture in Ephesians chapter 6. And in doing so, where I had been taught that the sandals of the gospel of peace, when I worked through it in a context, it's completely different than what I had formerly thought. We need to see what each of these pieces stand for. Would you look then with me in Ephesians chapter 6 for just a moment? I want to read the portion we'll be on. Then we're going to start. I'm going to ask Aaron to help me as I read an illustration to you. Paul writing at the end of the letter to the Ephesians, right in verse 10, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you may be able to stand to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having your loins girded with truth and putting on the breastplate of righteousness. And having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish the flaming arrows of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. And pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in proclaiming it may be spoken boldly as I ought to speak. Let me read an illustration and I'll ask Aaron Aaron to hold up the pieces as we read through. There are six different pieces of the armor that we'll be looking at at each of the weeks ahead. We're going to look at this spiritual battle that we are in. But a story that I came across starts out like this. May I help you, came an oily voice from behind the counter. The young man looked around the little clothing shop. I'm looking for an outfit, he said. I was headed for another shop, but it's too far away, and, and I was getting tired. Perfectly understandable, list the voice, its owner, a waxen-faced salesman with slicked back, dark hair, and hollow cheeks, finally rose from behind the counter. I'm sure we can help you with any wardrobe you could have found at that other store, he promised, rubbing his hands together, and at a better price, no doubt. I sure hope so, said the young man. I hear the price at the other store is pretty high. They want practically everything you've got. Tisk tisk went the salesman, gathering up his measuring tape. Imagine the nerve of that other store, claiming to be the only official outfitter, and then charging the highest prices in town. 
He walked over to the young man, positioned himself in front of the three-way mirror, and smiled. What sort of outfit would you like, he asked. I want a suit of armor, said the young man. The salesman arched his eyebrow. A suit of what? Armor. See, I just joined up to fight the battle, and they gave me this list of armor I'm supposed to wear, and he held up a piece of paper. Oh, that armor, said the salesman reading. Of course, we have an old suit like that in the back, I believe. But take my word for it, you wouldn't like it. Why not? The salesman sniffed back. It's simply, gosh, he replied. No one would be caught dead in a suit like that in these days. But I'm supposed to get one, the young man protested. Put on the whole armor, they told me. They said I couldn't fight the battle without it. The salesman sighed. Oh, very well, he said. What do you need first? The young man looked at the piece of paper. The girdle of truth, he read. A girdle? The salesman cried. The young man blushed. Well, it says right here that I have to gird my loins with truth. Have you got one or not? Just a minute, the salesman said, rolling his eyes and disappearing into the back room. In a moment, he peered with a wide leather band. Ouch, cried the young man, putting it around his waist. It feels awfully tight. Haven't you got a larger one? Sorry, said the salesman. You know how truth is. One size supposedly fits all. So constricting, don't you think? Yeah, I guess so, the young man said woefully. But they said I had to gird up my loins, so we do have an alternative, the salesman offered. It's the belt of regulations. He pulled a heavy plastic band from his shelf. Lovely piece of work, studded with artificial do's and don'ts. The young man tried it on. Oh, he said, this one's even worse. It's so tight I can barely breathe. So with that, the salesman said, some prefer the hidebound feeling. But I have something else that may be more to your liking. He reached under the counter and produced a piece of string. What's that, the young man asked. Ah, answered the salesman, it's the sash of sincerity. Try it on. I think you'll find it quite comfortable. Feels fine, the young man said. Then he frowned. But they told me I couldn't fight the battle if I didn't gird up my... Exactly, the salesman said. How can you fight a battle with a tight old belt around your waist? You need room to move, to slide, to waffle. The sash of sincerity is every bit as good as the girdle of truth and a lot more fashionable. Who needs truth if you're sincere? Well, said the young man, I, I, I guess that makes sense. I'll take the sash. An excellent choice. What's next? The young man checked the list. Uh, The breastplate of righteousness, he read. The salesman said, what's the matter? He shook his head. You'll absolutely hate it, promised the salesman. The ugly old thing, probably rusty by now, weighs a ton. They've been out of style for ages. But my list says... He sighed. I know, I know, he said, and went into the back room. Soon the sounds of grunting and clunking could be heard as he carried out a large iron breastplate onto the sales floor. See, he said, huffing and puffing. He dropped the breastplate to the floor with a clang. (laughs) He does sound effects, too. (laughs) It does look kind of uncomfortable, the young man agreed. But how can I go into battle without it? The salesman snapped his fingers. By wearing the straight jacket of self-righteousness, he declared. And he took a box from a shelf and helped the young man put on its contents. There, he said, how's that? The young man tried to move in vain, but he couldn't move his arms. It's lighter than that iron thing, but I don't think I could put up much of a fight without my hands. Feels kind of stiff, too. Kind of like a stuffed shirt. The salesman nodded. I know exactly what you mean, he purred. And he reached into a nearby rack and pulled out a red sport shirt. Try this instead, he suggested. Hey, I like this, the young man said. But how can this take the place of a breastplate of righteousness? The salesman chuckled. Look at the insignia over the pocket. The young man squinted in the mirror. It's an alligator. No, it's a smiley face, the salesman said. The international symbol of, the young man responded, righteousness. No, niceness. You're wearing the sport shirt of niceness, a perfect substitute. With that bright red collar, the enemy will never notice you sneaking through the forest. Really? 
trust me, he said, rubbing his hands. Okay, well, now I need the shoes of the gospel, continued the young man. Right here, the salesman pointed to a pair of black boots in a display case, the most unattractive footwear known to man. Tell me, wouldn't you rather wear those nice running shoes you've got on? Well, yeah, I guess I would, but they told me, of course they did, the man said. They were probably jealous of the fine shoes. Let me show you what we really need, the shoestrings of the gospel. And he handed the young man a pair of laces with tiny crosses painted all over them. You can wear your own comfortable shoes and make a statement at the same time. Aren't they marvelous? The young man frowned, I don't know. I'd feel kind of silly wearing these things. I mean, somebody might see them. My thoughts precisely, the salesman said. That's why I've got something even better, the socks of the gospel. The what? Take a look. 100% cotton with the same design as the shoelaces. But who's to see? They'll be hidden away from those comfy shoes of yours. Young men examined them. How much do they cost? A pittance, the salesman told him. Only a fraction of what you'd pay for those ugly shoes. Well, okay, the young man said. Now I need the shield of faith. The salesman laughed, my boy, you may need faith, but you don't need a shield. Nobody's used a shield for centuries. War isn't fought with bows and arrows anymore. This is the postmodern age. Oh, then what do I need? You need the sunglasses of faith, explained the salesman, for shielding your eyes on the battlefield. Here, try these. And the young man put on the glasses. I can't see a thing, he cried. These sunglasses are pitch black. Naturally, said the salesman, therefore blind faith. I can't go into battle with these, the young man argued. Guess I'll have to stick with the shield. You want a shield, the man asked. I'll give you a shield, but not one of those big bronze things. Have a button instead. A button? They're shaped like shields, only much smaller. You can pin them right on your shirt. They're the buttons of belief. But I need faith. Faith, belief, they're both the same. Just look at the wonderful slogans and all these buttons. Honk if you believe. I believe it, I believe it, that settles it. Turn your scars into candy bars, etc. The young man picked a bright yellow button. I like this one. It says, make believe, not war. It's you, said the salesman. So the young man then read the list. Next, I need the helmet of salvation. Take my word for it, the salesman said. That helmet is a dog, like having a galvanized bucket on your head. Anyway, what's the important thing about salvation? The young man responded, spending eternity with... No, the man cut him off. Security is what everybody wants. That's exactly what you get with that headband of security. And he picked it up from the counter. Absorbent terry cloth keeps you dry in the heat of battle. That's the kind of protection you really need. A headband? I don't know. Seems like... Well, then try the hairspray of holiness. So much lighter than that miserable helmet. (laughs) Holiness, huh? They told me I need that too. It's artificial, of course, but who'll know the difference? The salesman picked up a can, sprayed it into the air. Look at that. Makes a lovely halo effect when you shine light. Hits just right, don't you think? Yeah, but I'll take the headband, the young man said. Very good, said the salesman. That leaves, don't tell me, sword of the spirit. Right. The young man said. Salesman responded, much, much too expensive, I'm afraid. Useless, too. Fine for museums, but not much else. I have something better. What's that? And he pointed to a gleaming object on a shelf, the brass knuckles of doctrine. They don't pierce quite like the old swords did, but they're wonderful for pummeling. The young man looked doubtful. I could really use something sharper, he said. After all, this is war. The salesman stroked his chin with his bony finger. Sharper, he repeated. Oh, of course. What you need is the tie tack of tolerance. And he took a tiny bobble from the jewelry case. Our designers have managed to reduce the sword of the spirit to this size for ornamental purposes. But, of course, there's still a bit of a stick pin on the back. The young man looked it over. But I could never do battle with this. It can barely draw blood. (laughs) The salesman shuddered. Blood? Young man... We're talking about fashion here. And he motioned toward the mirror. Just look at you. You'll be the envy of everyone on the battlefield. You've got the sash of sincerity, 
the sports shirt of niceness, the socks of the gospel, the button of belief, the headband of security, and the tie tack of tolerance. What more could any soldier want? The young man admired himself in the mirror. I do look pretty good, don't I? I guess you're right. I'll take the whole armor or or this outfit anyway. Excellent, said the salesman. Will that be cash or charge? Check, said the young man, tossing his list into the nearest trash can. Pulled out his checkbook. Who do I make the check out to? The salesman said, rubbing his hands together, make it out to B period L period Zbub. The young man signed the check, handed it over. I'll just wear the outfit home, I guess. Oh, good, said the salesman. That will make things so much easier. Well, thanks, said the young man, turning to go. Glad I came in here instead of that other store. So am I, said the salesman, quietly taking a tiny bow and a fiery dart from under the counter. So am I. Kind of a story of life, isn't it? We could put on this armor, and we're going to talk about it. Zarin's been holding up different portions of what he's wearing or parts of this panel ply, as the scriptures call it. There are six elements to this armor. And we'll start next week as we talk about the belt. And each week we're going to describe the belt of truth and what it is for as it speaks of a commitment. We'll be talking about a breastplate that protects our heart and our feelings. We're looking at a helmet of salvation. We'll be talking about then a shield of faith. We'll be talking about the gospels, the preparation, the foundation of peace, sword that belongs and is spiritual. We'll see why Paul writes, as to what remains, you need this. We've written something here as an introduction. Would like to share it with you on this introduction. There are some days... When I think that if I were keeping score in the arena of life, it would feel like the lion's ten in the Christian zero, doesn't it? Does it feel that way? Why are there so many seemingly powerless, beaten, or non-growing Christians? Why do sometimes we work with folks, you work with folks, or you feel, why am I defeated? Why is Satan seemingly to have a heyday in my life? I believe the answer is something that Paul discloses for us here and that we, they, fail to realize that we are in a battle at war. And many Christians, as we've written here, don't even know it. And if they do, they don't act like it. Everywhere, all the time, we're opposed by an enemy simply because we become children of God. And Jesus said, if they have what? If they have persecuted, killed, tried, and tested him, what? The servant is not greater than the master. It's going to happen to you and me as well. What they did to him will happen to you and me. We need to remember that in all our comforts and casualness, there is a war going on. And the casualties of the warfare are all around us. Our civilization, and that's why we've subtitled this Standing Firm in a Shifting Culture. Our postmodern civilization is littered with pockets of hopelessness and empty lives and shattered homes, throwaway marriages, abused lives, and eternally lost folks. Those are the casualties. And under these kind of serious wartime conditions, we cannot allow ourselves to live indifferently, apathetically. And so what Paul has for us is a message found in the passage that we just read that every Christian should stand firm against the onslaughts of Satan. And what is required for us to stand firm? We're going to see that you need, first of all, spiritual strength. Then we're going to talk and begin next week then with a study called Spiritual Armor. In the whole armor series, we're breaking it down into those two large areas. And then we'll also need spiritual communications. But we need spiritual strength, and that's found in our three verses at the beginning. Finally, and as you look on the sheet, spiritual strength, the focus of our study tonight, is dealing with spiritual strength. And I want you to notice, as we talk about spiritual strength as this builds, we would ask the the issue, what do you mean? What are you talking about? What is spiritual strength? Why do I need it? How do I get it? You need spiritual strength that is based or comes about through this call to arms. Notice Paul writes, finally, my brethren, 
Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God. And as we look into this verse 10, as we begin, finally, Paul says, and when he uses that word finally, it's like, oh, by the way, I almost forgot to say. That's not what he is intending to write and communicate to us. The idea of finally here means for the rest, as to the rest, or what is remaining, what remains to do. In order to live out everything that has been written in Ephesians to this point, this is what is needed as the capstone. Let yourselves be strengthened. It's very important. As he says here, be strong in the Lord. And as we read it and as we even sang it as a group, be strong in the Lord, literally in the Greek is let yourself be strengthened. And I say it that way in the Greek language. We don't do quite like what we do in English. We have in our verb tenses and in the way we speak in the Greek, we will have what we call an active voice. I hit the ball. A passive voice. I was hit by the ball. Something happened to me. The Greek also has a middle. We don't have anything like that in English. I hit the ball. I was hit by the ball. Active, I hit it. Passive, I was hit by it. Middle, I hit myself. We don't even have that in English. In this Greek verse, Paul says, finally, let yourself be strengthened. And it's passive. And I say that because something is going to be done to and for you. That is critical. I do not have to muster up the strength. Does that make sense? I am going to be strengthened. I do not have to buck up, energize myself. Something is going to strengthen me, done to me. And then it says, put on the full armor of God. That is, remember that English doesn't have it? I hit myself, the middle. This is in the middle. In other words, I am going to be strengthened as I do something to myself. And what do I have to do? It says in verse 11, put on the armor. As I clothe myself, as I apply this, God's going to give me spiritual strength. There it is. Because of the call to arms, be strong. Put on the commands then to do this. They're imperatives, they're commands. You do your part, God will do his. Now you do yours, and he will do his. Those are the commands. And as that spiritual strength is based on a call to arms, it comes through attachment to Christ. It says here in verse 10, Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Paul had seen soldiers, especially Roman soldiers, but these are expressions used... Well, if you'll go back for just a moment with me to Isaiah for just a split second. Let's go back there. Isaiah 11. I'll give you a couple of references here. Isaiah 11.5. You needn't necessarily turn there, but I will read for you. And if you'll just listen, Isaiah 11 verse 5 is the first verse where it says... Also righteousness will be the belt of his loins and faithfulness the belt of his waist. Who's he speaking about? Well, the same person that he speaks about in Isaiah 59, verse 16 and verse 17. And he saw that there was no man and was astonished that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought salvation to him and his righteousness upheld him. And he put on righteousness like a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. And he put on garments of vengeance for clothing, wrapped himself with zeal as a mantle. In Isaiah 59, verses 16 and 17, we are speaking about the one known as the captain of Israel. And Paul had seen soldiers, but he's, as he talks about and sees that image and saw those Roman soldiers day in and day out while he is a prisoner, and as he writes this letter back to Ephesus, he writes about these soldiers who put on the armor, but he is also talking about we have something even greater than any Roman soldier had, and we have the strength that comes through the captain of Israel, through our Lord Jesus Christ. 
Every Christian, he says, then can draw from the resources in Christ and from his mighty power. And by the way, as he talks about in the strength of his might, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. For just a moment, go back in Ephesians. Paul is not going to use too many terms that he hasn't already described in Ephesians. For he says in chapter 6, verse 10, finally, or as to what remains, he draws everything together. And when he talks about this strength or power, what's he talking about? What kind of power is available to you or to me? Back in chapter 1, for just a moment, Ephesians 1 in verse 19 and 20, if you will go there. For we read in Ephesians 1.19, And what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe? These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. When we're talking about spiritual power in your life and in my life, do you know what kind of power we're talking about? Paul says you have available to you the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. That's like a you got to be kidding, power. The identical power that raised Christ from the dead now is available to you and me in this life, not in the future. He's talking about now in a spiritual battle. That causes me to say, holy cow, okay? Do you understand what we're talking about? It is wonderful. Why am I defeated? I don't need to be. Amen? That's what's available to you and me. And every Christian can draw from that resource. In other words, victory is already implied. But you have to decide every day to be spiritually protected by letting yourself be clothed in his armor, his righteousness. And notice then, the battle is on, so put on your armor. And by the way, the put on. Aaron walked out of here, and by now he's taken that off. It's heavy. That shield, you can't even believe how heavy that thing is. And Roman soldiers actually used something like this, made of heavy leather or wood. It's a half inch thick. Sometimes they were even as thick as two inches. Then they covered them in leather, and they soaked those things in water when they went into battle. They would soak that one in water. And when you'd hit it with a dart or an arrow flaming, it could actually extinguish them. That thing is really heavy. That's why the fellows, when they carried it in today, said, do you mind if we set them on the floor? Okay. They are awkward and heavy. So when we pick up a piece like that, or like a football helmet, and you put it on, you put it on when you go in. Coach says, Burgraff, you're in. And when you go in, now you put it on. This says here, The battle is on, so put on your armor. Put it on once and for all. Put it on, leave it on. It's not a game jersey you take off for each skirmish. We're talking about something we should be clothed in. And the reason is why. Because defeat is certain in your own strength. But in his protection and power, you have victory. So we see, because of the call to arms that comes through attachment to Christ, if you're in Christ, that power is available to you. But notice number three, because of the spiritual battle. And we'll spend a few minutes there before we conclude. You need spiritual strength. You need spiritual strength because of the spiritual battle. This is an intense battle. So he writes in the passage, beginning in verse 11, so that, in order that, you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil in order that you may be able to stand against the greek word is state from histemi the idea is to stand to hold a rank to hold the ground hold the position stand at your post don't move and the idea is stand against a as we could talk about hostility facing you. And what is that hostility? In other words, stand firm. Stand the ground. For instance, we're told later on we're going to see that these shoes, this gospel of, or the preparation of the gospel of peace, and I'd been taught by some that, well, that refers to carrying the gospel out and being a witness and a soul winner. There are many passages in Scripture 
Many that talk about us being witnesses. And it ought to be a characteristic of our life every hour of our life, sharing the gospel. But that's not what these sandals, the gospel of peace are. Because in this passage it says to what? Stand. It doesn't say walk. It doesn't say move. It says what? Stand. You don't need to be moved. Okay, we're not talking about going out, walking, and sharing. We're talking about standing here and holding your ground for the Lord. So what's he all talking about? Why is that important? Because you and I need to stand. In order that you may be able to stand because we face a real enemy. A real enemy. Be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. We face a real enemy. He's even given the name here, Diablos the devil. Folks... This passage of Scripture affirms something again, and that's the reality of Satan. He is real. Jot down a couple of notes, if you would, and that is this, underneath this point. The Bible teaches of him. The prophets knew of his existence. And I hope you know what happened or how he came about. You can read a couple of passages, and I'll just read them and you can listen. The first one is in Isaiah chapter 14. In Isaiah chapter 14, beginning in verse 12, the Lord writes for us, How have you fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, son of the dawn? You have been cut down to the earth. You have weakened the nations, but you said in your heart, I will ascend to the heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of the assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the cloud. I will make myself like the most high. Nevertheless, you will be thrust a she-hole to the recesses of the pit. In Isaiah chapter 14, verses 12 through 14, and again in Ezekiel 28, verses 13 through 15, in those two books we read of the downfall of Lucifer, prime among the angels chief among the angels. And he speaks seven expressions about how I will be like the Most High. I will ascend. I will have his worship. And he took a third of the angels with him in rebellion against God, at which time God then cast them forth from him. Some are so evil they have never been on the face of this earth yet. They're in bondage and chains until, as Stephen's been preaching, in the tribulation period, they will be released. Imagine the evil on this world. I mean, I hear of crimes and abuse and things like that, and I'm, I'm, they're, they're beyond my imagination. And the world is yet to see how evil it'll get until they're released. Praise God we won't be here, amen? But that day's coming. In the meanwhile, and by the way, Satan's never been to hell. He's never seen it. His angels that he's got here on earth, they've never been there. Their dwelling is where? Here. They're here now. They've only gone from heaven to here. And they're all among us and around us in the world that we live in. The Bible teaches of him, the evil one, and Jesus spoke of him. In Matthew chapter 4, chapter 13, Matthew 13, Matthew 25, verse 41, in John 12, 31, in John 16, 11, etc. I was holding evangelistic meetings years ago in a church in Springfield, Massachusetts. One of the evenings before the meetings, I was in a home well, the, was the chairman of the deacon board, and we were eating dinner. And most odd conversation that stayed in my mind ever since because the wife, for whatever reason, we were talking about what we would be preaching on that evening, and we were talking about Jesus going into the graveyard at Gadara among the Gadarene who had the legion of demons in him, and Jesus would cast him out. And as I was preaching on this, this the... the Chairman's wife said, oh, I don't believe in Satan. There's no such thing. That's just our way of euphemizing bad. And I, uh, what? <laughs> um, no, I don't believe he's a real person. Not to be crude, rude, or just brash to her, but lady, if you don't believe there's a Satan, 
you just call Jesus a liar because he believed in his reality. As a matter of fact, he confronted him. He was real to Jesus. He was real to the apostles. He's real to the prophets. He's a real being. He's real. He's real, and not only the reality of Satan, but the ability of Satan. Not that we want to give him any glory, praise, or credit, but folks, you and I need to realize what we are up against. And in the military, for those of us who've been in the military, we do study the enemy, and we spend a lot of time studying an enemy. And you and I need to know, and many folks don't want to study him, and there are men who write about him Merrill Unger and others over the years, and it's like, as a theologian, I say, fine, let them write about him. I don't want to. There are more glorious things to write about, amen? But I do appreciate their works that help me understand the ability of Satan. Let me point out a couple of things and jot this down. The ability of Satan, where he said he is clever and a master of trickery and transformation. I want you to write down three truths. Number one, Satan and his emissaries. Number one, he belongs to an order of creatures higher than man. He belongs to an order of creatures that is higher than man. He is of a fallen angelic order. Hebrews 11, 2. I'm I'm sorry, Hebrews 2, verse 7. Hebrews 2, verse 7 talks about how, well, I'll read the passage to you. A little, Jesus was made a little lower, and you'll understand then what he is trying to communicate to you and me about that. But in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 7, then the writer records for you and me, you have made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor. In other words, Jesus became a man, and that is a little what? Lower than the angels. At this time, we are lower than that angelic order in power. There's coming a day in our glorification, we will actually be what? Higher. Now, as much as I try, I can take a run at that wall, and I cannot go through that. You know, just take, and you'd, you'd hear it, and you'd see it, and you'd laugh. Maybe not. You'd go, whoa. But it, but it hit in the split. But there's coming a day when I will not only go through that, I can be in another place. I can do things beyond even the metaphys- beyond the material world. We will do things in a metaphysical world we never imagined. Well, that would be one thing that's good. Just think of the power the human body will have when it's glorified. More important than that, sin won't affect us. It'll have no power over us. That's the beauty of it. No more bondage, no more power to that. In a sense, we already have been conquered, but he is one, an order of creatures higher than man presently, Ezekiel 28, 14. Number two, he has greater experience than any living man. And this is what frightens me. Greater experience than any living man. His longevity gives him the background into human conditions. He has observed believers down through the ages. Listen, is Lucifer, are those demons, are they powerful? They took Adam and Eve out of the Garden of Eden. Caused the nation of Israel to rebel against God. Would take Peter right away from warming his hands to deny Jesus Christ. You go to Ephesus today or to Corinth and you look around, those churches don't even exist anymore. Well, the believers, yeah, but what's happened to them over the ages? Do you understand what I'm saying? Greater churches than ours have succumbed to them. Which says they've got all the experience in the world. They've been here since the creation of man. They've seen men in every situation. So when I think in my heart and my mind, well, I'll take him on. He's a master gambler. I'm no match. And the house always wins if I play it with the house's rules and play by his rules. You can't play by his rules nor enter into his game. Praise God, greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. We'll play by our Lord's rules. Let me say something else. One, he is of a greater order of creatures than man. He has greater experience than any living being. And he has the ability to transform himself, thirdly. 
In other words, he can deceive as an angel of light, a minister of righteousness. And he is called that in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 14 and 15. He's called a dragon with horns and a tail in Revelation 12, 3, which is a symbol of fierceness and a struggle against believers, the ability to transform himself. He makes sin enticing, and he makes it look appealing to you and me. So we face a real enemy, the devil. We are engaged in a real battle, secondly, for we wrestle. Notice this. In verse 11 and 12, put on the armor so that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. But going on as he talks about this, he says, for we struggle, our struggle, we wrestle not against flesh and blood. The old English would say we wrestle. The verse here says, for we struggle, we wrestle. Notice here as we talk about this, this is a continual war. It's a present tense. That struggle means it just goes on and on, an ongoing or a presently around us. And by the way, the word struggle or the word wrestle there is a term for hand-to-hand combat. And it shows the nature of the struggle. It's not an athletic contest. In Roman times, in the gladiatorial games, they would wrestle. And they would use schemes and trickery. How many of you ever on a wrestling team in high school? Any men did that or anything? Well, you learned how to trick your opponent. And you schemed so you could do the takedown or something in a wrestling match. And the term wrestle, but in the Ro- and, and we would do that, and then you'd be awarded points at the end of the match. In the Roman arena, they would wrestle. And then the emperor or another would give the signal to the one that was they would go what? Thumbs up, you live, you die. All right? But what happens if, what would happen if you survived now? You would just what? Go back and wrestle until somebody dies. The match that we're talking about here, Satan does not intend to leave you wounded. What's his goal? What Paul is talking, we wrestle. He is trying to communicate to you and me in the picture of that day by using the term of a struggle or a wrestle. He is out to do what to you? Destroy or kill you. He wants to kill you. This is not to wound you. His intent is to kill you. It's a continual war. It's an invisible war. He says it's not against flesh and blood. The most threatening enemy is not the system, the political system, the world as we see it. We preach that. We focus because we we are world creatures. We live in this world. When God created man, he named him Adam. The word is what? Adam. What does Adam mean in Hebrew? Dirt. That was his name. So it was. So, hey, dirt, that's it. So, sorry, that's... (laughs) There's a problem with learning the original language as you go. I was going to call my son Adam. No more, okay. (laughs) No more. Adam, not a good one. Hey, no, I won't go there anymore. But that's the idea, see. And so, as a reminder, this is the realm you and I dwell in right now. Work in. Live around. And we sometimes so focus that we think, well, our real problems and the struggles we have are the world system, the political system, and wrestling against some of the economics. It's much bigger than that. This one's out to destroy your soul, if it could, and men's souls. It's fighting for the things that are way beyond this world that will go on for eternity. It's a continual war. It's an invisible war. It's a spiritual war. I've jotted down several notes for myself. If you want to jot some things down, and if you would underneath this spiritual war, I want you to notice, first of all, that the battle is supernatural. As we talk about this spiritual war, the battle being supernatural, we wrestle then, as we said, against creatures that are beyond our natural capacities. Stronger, more clever, more experienced. Creatures that are highly organized. Against us. Satan is not our only enemy. He has a host of fallen angels. Verse 12 against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. 
So we have a host of wickedness that we are dealing with. But then notice something else. The battle is subtle. The battle is subtle. For we wrestle, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against something terrible. Back in verse 11, it said that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. That word, if you have an old English, if you're carrying the King James Version, it would say that we may be able to stand against the what? Wiles of the devil. Years ago, when I first got saved, I needed to have an area of service. Lucy and I were, well, Awana leaders, and she became a lady commander thing and all that, and so we worked in the Awana program as it's going on this evening. Part of the Awanas is you teach kids to memorize Scripture. And we would bring these kids from the neighborhoods and all and come to our church. And then on Wednesday evening, we had a wanna. And I'm helping this little fifth grader, fourth grader actually it was, I remember, learn Bible. And it was his memory book and we're memorizing scriptures. And we're in Ephesians chapter 6. And he's memorizing this verse of scripture in Ephesians chapter 6. Put on the armor of God so that you can stand against the willies of the devil. All right? <laughs> and I thought, the what? And I read it. The willies. That's about right. Okay. The willies of the devil. Okay. And that's what it is. The willies. What are these willies, by the way? Or these wilds or these methodia is the Greek word. The methodia, we get our word what from it? Methods. The methods. Back in chapter, just for a moment, if you want to, chapter 4. Remember I said Paul uses words he's kept using in Ephesians? The same word. The, the willies, the wiles, the methodia comes from chapter 4, verse 14. Chapter 4, verse 14. As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine or by the tricky, trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. There it is, the methodia. These craftinesses, these schemes, the deception. Satan's a liar. And he said to Adam and Eve, remember the plan? God hasn't said, no, 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 no. You're not going to die. You're not going to die. Well, God said the day that we eat it, we're surely going to die. No, 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 you won't die. By the way, he told a half-truth. But a half-truth is a what? whole lie. So how does he deceive? Scripture cites numerous attacks of Satan. And I'll just give you a few. Listen to these. What does Satan do? What are his methodias? What are his willies? Well, first of all, he undermines God's character and credibility. I just gave you an illustration from Genesis 3. He causes you and me, in other words, to doubt God's word. Number two, he tries to make the Christian life hard to live, discouraging. How? Through persecution or pressure or pleasure. You live for Christ. You look around those who seem to be gaining more. I mean, even Psalm 73 says, I looked around and I wondered, why is life so much easier for them than for me as a child of God? I didn't understand until I went into the sanctuary and understood their end. Thirdly, he confuses us with false doctrine, false teaching, false teachers. Fourthly, he hinders your service to Christ. Sixthly, he causes division in the local body seen throughout the New Testament. Sixthly, he urges you to trust in your own strength and ability. And I have scripture for all of these, but we don't have time. You're no match. Seventhly, he will cause believers to deceive, practice hypocrisy. Acts 5, for instance, Ananias and Sapphira, even within the body. He makes you worldly or lust for the cosmos, the world. Love not the world, neither the things in it. And he's drawing us toward that. He persuades you to disobey God's word, to oppose God's moral laws, to disobey God's... He he just does that. Be not deceived. God is not mocked. Whatsoever man sows, he shall, what? Reap. But that first part of Galatians 6, 7, don't let yourself be what? Be not deceived. He's deceiving you. The term deceived, by the way, means to do this. Literally, it is this. To flick your nose at God. It was an old method of saying when somebody told you something. Okay. I don't want to demonstrate what it really means like that. Okay. But that was the idea. This is what I think of what you're telling me. Something I'm just going to get rid of. 
so they would flick their nose. That's the term to deceive in Galatians 6-7. Satan causes you, to, you and me to do that with God's word. Sort of flick your nose at it. By the way, Paul writes, God knows. He sees. Don't let Satan take you down that pathway because you're sowing something wrong and one day you'll reap it. Don't live that way. So we spend an evening going, there's somebody out to kill me. I mean, really. If he had his druthers, he would take my life on the way home this evening. He would do yours too. He would do it to our children. Doesn't mean that death is in the hands of Satan. He's just going to do anything to take you and me, even destroy our testimony publicly. He will try to render us inoperative, useless. and Take our testimony away. And then move on to the next. Here, why wear this belt of truth? Wear this string. Put on these socks. Use this tie tack. You don't need this stuff. Paul says, you need this. And by the way, you just put this on. You accept these truths. And I'll give you strength that raised Jesus from the dead. And by the way, it's already available to you. When you got saved, it's yours. You just need to display it. Did you know that? It's already yours. It's available to you. You and I are not only on the winning team. We're on God's side and he's conquered. And so can you and so can I. Isn't that great? We have victory. Father, thank you for the time and the word. Now teach us, Lord, please, truths through the word about this armor. And Lord, may we learn much May we be able to stand tall for you and see great things in our lives where we work among our family and relatives. Lord, please help us to take none of these truths for granted as we work our way through that which you have for us in the Believer's Armor series. In Jesus' name we rejoice and pray. Amen. Amen.